Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that I'm here. I got up at 5.30 in Oxford, Mississippi to drive to Fondren Church today. And notice that just has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought I would slip that in there. Oxford, Mississippi. It's kind of an olive branch, a peace offering. Doesn't it feel good for us to come together as one in Jesus? Hey, I want to put three words on the screen as we begin today. Here are the three words. Vision, values, and paradox. Today, it is my uh, effort. I'm going to try to share with you our vision as a church. And don't worry, this won't sound like a commercial. This is the vision, in fact, for our church is not to like us on Facebook or subscribe to our newsletter or anything like that. It, uh, I want to share with you our vision, and, and next week I want to share with you our values. And I hope that if anything doesn't make sense today or there are questions or interests, then next week we can answer that as we unpack three values. And then the last word, besides vision and values, is the word paradox. And this will be our sermon series for the first part of the fall of August 18th uh, all the way through September. We're going to look at Paradox, subtitled The Foolish Wisdom of Jesus. And the definition of paradox is something that seems like it's untrue. It's like a, it's a contradiction. But upon further uh, investigation, upon further adventure and following, we realize, aha, this is wise, this is true. And for seven weeks, we're going to look at some of the great paradoxes of the teachings of Jesus. And we hope that each and every small group that circles up will walk through this with us. Uh, if you're not in a group, get in a group. If you're in a group, grow deeper. And we hope that we can come around you. John's going to give us some information at the close of the service. And I'll preach that a good part of next week as we unpack our values. But what are we going to talk about today? Vision. So the, the, vision, the vision question is always this. Why do we exist? Why are we here? What kind of people as a church are we trying to produce? And how do we know, how will we know if we're hitting our target? How are we going to know if we're hitting our target? Our vision as a church, this was, we really believe, a God thing, a team ordained thing. There was a plurality of leaders in a special setting. We were seeking God. Some were fasting. And we were brought to uh, just a beautiful consensus. I won't uh, tell you about it uh, in detail. Uh, some know what I'm talking about. But we were brought to Galatians 5, 6. So our vision as a church actually flows from, it's found in a verse. And how's this for sake of ease? It's not even a whole verse. It's half a verse. It's Galatians 5, 6b. And it says this, that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through or in love. You know, as a... If you're in a family, if you're in a workplace, if you're in this church or another church or any team, you know that sometimes you can be busy with ritual and routine. You can be involved in policy, procedure, and protocol. You can have your head down, your nose to the grindstone. And then you begin to lose a joy. You begin to wander off vision. One pastor says vision leaks. So it's, it's incumbent upon us to keep it in front of us. And what I love about this is that it discards everything else. In fact, Galatians 5, 6a, they're talking about a ritual in their history and their tradition that mattered, but it doesn't matter anymore because of Jesus. Jesus came with a new covenant. He ushered in an entire new system of righteousness. And I love this. Some of you are with me on this. You'll feel me on this. It's less complicated and more simple. In fact, it's very, it has less procedure and it's just more profound and it touches the heart. And they said, this group of religious leaders got together and said, this doesn't count, that doesn't count, that doesn't count, that doesn't count. The only thing that counts is what? 
Say it out loud. That was weak. God forgives. Let's do it again. The only thing that counts is? Y'all need to know when you talk back to the preacher, he preaches faster. Maybe not better, but faster. So let's look at this. Let's look at what really matters. Let's start with that word. Let's start with the word faith. Who's got faith? If you have faith today, raise your hand. I'm, I'm not even talking about faith in God. So if you're here and you don't believe in God or not sure if you believe, you're off the hook. We're not, I'm not going to put a fork in the road, or at least not this early in the sermon. But how many of you have faith? All of Every hand should be up. You're just being disobedient to the preacher if your hand's not up. Some of you are motioning to me and somebody's using a finger in the back. But anyway, uh, the index finger, move on. Go on, Robert, you're saying... But all of us are people of faith. And if you, a similar word, if you wonder, W-O-N-D-R, you have faith. And so let me ask you the question as we begin. What do you wonder? What do you wonder? Unfortunately, children do a lot better job of this. And as we get older, we do less of this and we don't do it as well. And we sweep it under the rug and we get cynical and jaded. But let me ask you... What do you wonder? For those of us who believe in God, we wonder as well. Some of you might even be offended by that statement because I've noticed that some people come to church and take the Bible seriously, and y'all know I do. But Scripture talks about certainty, but it also talks about mystery. There's mystery involved. Now, there are passages where Paul says, I know whom I believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've trusted against that day. That's a, that's a, a voice of certainty, isn't it? And so I want to embrace that. I want to preach that. But there's also mystery. We just see dimly through a glass. In fact, the mirror is very fog. We don't, it's very foggy. We don't see it all. And so people of faith, listen, we wonder, and we wonder about heaven, don't we? If you believe in God, you wonder about heaven. What's it going to be like? Are there going to be famous people there? Will we be able to see and interact with Bible heroes? And what about my mom? What will she look like? Will it be the younger version of my mom or the middle-aged version? Or will it be the mom that I saw last? That brings up a whole lot of questions. And people who are non-theist... They probably wonder how some of us can be so naive to believe in heaven. But here's what I found out because I'm a pastor and sometimes I get a front row seat into people's lives. Because as Scripture says, God has put eternity in our hearts. And even those who are non-theist or atheist, those who say they don't believe, there are times, there are times when they, or maybe it's you, where you wonder also about life after death, about heaven And is there a God and what's it like? And you wonder if you might be wrong. So what do you wonder? Here's what we all have in common, no matter what camp you fit into. All of us have a frame of reference of which we see life through. Do you believe that? Everybody's got a frame of reference. And so you see it, your childhood memories, both good and bad and neutral, affect that. Your worldview, the assumptions that you've made along the way, your education, your experiences, when you live in a swim in the sea of social media and you see what's happening in our world, you have a frame of reference of which you see life through. But here's what I want to say to everybody in the room. This is common to our humanity. All of us wonder, and our frame of reference doesn't provide all of the answers that we seek. And so to that, what then is 
the crux of Christianity, if the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love, we ought to understand a little more about faith and a whole lot more about love, I would say. But what then is the crux of Christianity? If it doesn't provide us with all the answers, then what is it? What matters? I would put this up to you. God became, this is what Christians believe and follow, God became one of us to clear up things for us. That's the message. That's the story. That's the story of faith. Scripture says Emmanuel. God took on a tent, a fleshly tent, and He dwelled among us to show us, to show us what He's like. And so, let's talk a moment. Let's clear something up. Because people like me, and I'll own this, we do a lot at times, wittingly and unwittingly, to confuse people about faith. And churches can be very confused. And so I want to I jump in with Jesus, if that's okay. I want us to look to Him as the life giver, as the master teacher, and as the ultimate source. And so let's, let's debunk a couple of myths about faith. What faith is not. The first thing that I want to say to you this morning, faith is not some spooky force. Now, anybody believe in spooky force? A spooky force, there's, there is a word for that when you think that there's some power, some transcendent power that you tap into and it's supernatural. In fact, even amidst our advancement in education and relative standardized intelligence, surveys reveal that more and more people believe in the supernatural. But I want to say to you today that faith is not some spooky force. There's a name for that. You know what it is? That's called magic. Or it's called paganism. And the essence of magic and the essence of paganism, which is multi-gods, typically, is let's manipulate God. Let's do something and let's tap into it. But here's where it can get real for us, and I'm no doubt real for some of you today. In your mind, sitting in a church pew on August the 4th of 2019, you can think back. You can think back to probably your younger years when you prayed and prayed and prayed and believed and believed and believed, but your sister wasn't healed. Your brother didn't get better. Your father left home. And you're left wondering, where is God? And how? Why should you have faith? So faith, let's be clear, is not a spooky force, but also faith is also not a special formula. Now, what do we know about formulas? Some of you are really wired this way. Me, not so much. I'm more of the artsy, jazzy, creative type. But a formula for humans, we approach it what? We want to know if there is a formula. We want to simply know what is the formula. How do you tap into the formula and how can you master the formula? I was thinking back as I was writing the sermon, probably the only formula that I've really mastered is Pac-Man. And honestly, I dominate. And early in our marriage, I didn't know better men. Listen, I played a lot of Pac-Man in bed at night. My wife was not impressed by my very, very high score. But I had memorized the pattern at least to get me to a quarter of a million points. And it was smooth and it was fun. There's a formula. What is the formula? Memorize it. And then with sleight of hand and shifty fingers, you got to execute it. But listen, faith is not a special formula. Two prayers a day, read the Bible, go to church. Two prayers a day, read the Bible, go to church. 
or meditate, exercise, eat right. Meditate, exercise, eat right. It's not a formula because if you could put God into some sort of spooky force or into a special formula, He is no longer God. He is something that you are seeking to manipulate, usually, always, for your own end. So then, what is faith? Anybody know where I'm going next? A definition of faith? Hebrews 11.1. 1. You knew it. You were just afraid to answer. Now faith is. That's a good place to start. If you're standing in front of hundreds of people and saying, what is faith? That's a good place to start. Just those first few words are pretty cool. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Does that clear it up for anybody? Be honest. It's kind of perplexing, isn't it? This is faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Let's put it this way. Faith is confidence that hope so will be so. You hope and I hope and we have lots of hopes. And we hope in people that will ultimately disappoint us. Even those who bring great joy to our lives and intimacy, they uh, will disappoint us. I will disappoint you. We put our hope in things, but, but faith is this confidence that hope so will be so. Let's pretend for a moment that you've been hoping that you get a raise. Who's hoping that you get a raise? Very strategic if you're on staff with Fondren Church. You could raise your hand now. It's not going to help you, but anyway. Who hopes that they uh, would get a raise? Or at any point in your life, you hope that you get a raise. Maybe you go home and you talk to your spouse or your kids or your roommate about the hope. But you come home one day with a little more confidence. You're not just hoping anymore, hoping that, that, that it will be so. But you come home declaring that you're getting a raise, but your roommate, your spouse, your friends, children, they want to know why has your confidence gone up? And you tell them, this is good, the boss told me I'm getting a raise. Now that's a good reason, unless your boss is real shady, that's a good reason to believe that you're going to get the raise. Your hope so is going to be so because someone who can deliver on their word told you it would be so. And that, that is what faith is. It's not a spooky force. It's not a special formula. It is confidence and it is assurance that what we hope for will be so. But here's the thing, and this is really important. Look at, if you will, back, I think you have to go back, but Hebrews 12, 2, share, it shares this, that we should be, because of who He is, who Jesus is, we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame. He is, and He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the author he is the perfecter of our faith. I want to say to you, and this is where hopefully I want to challenge you and clear some things up. We don't put our faith in our experiences or even an answer to prayer. We put our faith in a person. And for it to be fixed and for it to be firm, we need to do that. Now let me say that faith for it to, for it to come into existence... For it to be, for, for it to become real in your life. And I hope I'm looking out around the room at a lot of people who have faith in God, specifically faith in Christ. 
I know your story could be like mine, that there was some catalytic event. There was a moment, there was an experience that God used in your life. I'm not discounting that. It's, it's important. As I said, it's catalytic. But we can't put our faith in that. We need to put our faith in a person. I won't go far down this road. Some of you know me well know this, but when God was getting my attention as a young man, as a teenager, I'm convinced, 100% convinced, that he healed me of something. It wasn't major, but it was very visible, and God took away something uh, in response to our prayers and got my attention. And that was so long ago, and it was super instrumental in me believing in Christ. But I cannot, as you, as you know, I have prayed many times, and I cannot uh, tap into a magic formula. I cannot and should not rely on that each and every time. As you've heard me say, I prayed for healing and we've seen it. And many times, many more times, I prayed for healing and haven't seen it. So ultimately, our faith is in a person. Raise your hand. I'm asking you to do that a couple, a few times today. But raise your hand if you've heard of a man named Abraham. Yes. Listen to what God says to him in Genesis 12. We'll look at verse 2 and verse 3. Genesis 12 This is a promise. God gave him this promise. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Keep that up. I will make you a great nation. Anybody, has anybody, uh, has God ever made anybody in the room a great nation? Nobody, right? If If God makes you a great nation, you're probably blessed, right? And he says, I'm going to make your name great. And everybody in the room has heard of Abraham, so everybody in the room can concur and say, God delivered on his promise. And look what he goes on to say, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, will, will I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I'm doing something bigger than just what I'm doing to you. And by the way, I believe that is descriptive for everybody. If God's doing something in your life, he's doing it for more than just you. He's blessing you to be a blessing to other people. Every time, in some way, big or small, God blesses Fondren, I pray that we are humble and hungry and scrappy, and we seek not to get fat and happy and content, but that we will seek to bless other people. And do you know that this whole blessing other nations was new? What did nations do back then? We think we live in violent times, don't we? Like the news is disturbing. But back then, nations didn't bless other nations. Nations pillaged and they conquered. And whatever that nation, once they conquered, whatever you had of value, they took for their own value. And God is saying through Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And we know, all of us can use our minds in this room now and realize God kept His promise. But look what it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these people, by the way, Uh, It tells us in Hebrews that the ancients were commended for what? You know, the ancients were commended for their faith. They were commended for their faith. But what does that mean? Hunky-dory, all happy. All these people were still living by faith when they died. He just recounted some who missed out on the blessing. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Can I just stop that? Can I just say this? Christianity is never intended to be a mind-numbing, experience-denying faith. Never. If it hurts, talk about it. 
If it's hard, bring it to the surface. If you don't know, take that doubt so that your faith can grow. It's kind of funny. I'm I'm just going to make fun of a lot of people in the room now, but I just think it's funny that at the church today, we'll get in groups and someone will say, well, you know, I need to confess that I mean, I don't don't really want to tell anybody. I'll just tell one person, but I have some doubts. (gasps) You have doubts? Oh my gosh. Get out. Leave now. They admitted. They admitted. So here's the thing. People leave faith and people are leaving faith. I just got a call this week. Someone wants to talk with me, I don't know, possibly debate, debate me on a site called Life After God. Now, this guy is really smart. I, don't, I probably don't need to take his call. But I know what he's taught me and what I've learned, that people leave faith, and they're leaving faith. And here's what I want to say. They're leaving faith. Many people leave faith because we sign God's name to promises he never made. All right? No wonder some of us are leaving our faith. No wonder we're finding it hard to hold on to the faith that we profess. Look at Hebrews 4, 14. It says this very thing, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Remember, that's who we follow. That's our ultimate source. That's our master teacher. That's the church we want to be. Let us, we're in this together, let us hold firmly to what? Say it. The faith that we profess. And if you're signing God's name to promises He's never made to you, that's a faith that can't hold up. And I have found in my own wavering and doubting, and as I not just preach but pastor people and talk to people in the faith and outside of the faith, I know, I know that there's a couple of things that erode our faith. And one is personal decisions, and another is unexpected circumstances. And here's what I want to say to you when it comes to personal decisions. There will be times for any person of faith that the pleasures of this life will make your faith inconvenient. Anybody with me? Let's be real for a moment. There will be times in this life where the pleasures of life will make your faith be inconvenient. And if you're living in such a way, you may not be glad you came to church today, but if you're living in such a way where you're adjusting your belief systems to follow your personal decisions, and you adjust your belief system to follow your personal decisions, then you have a faith that's not worth following. And Jesus himself said that the cares of this life, the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust for other things will choke out our faith. John, an early follower of Jesus, said, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it's passing away. So personal decisions, the, the principle of pleasure will violate faith at times and then unexplained circumstances. Can I tell you that you and I, we don't do a good job at interpreting life experiences. It's why therapists and counselors are needed and some of them are killing it. Like I know a couple of counselors, man, they're rolling in cars. They're they're driving cars I'm not driving. But you and I, we don't do well typically in interpreting our circumstances. 
and the unexplained circumstances can trip us up. And so let's make sure, because here's what I want to say, and this is the heart of the gospel message, and it really is the church that we want to be. But God did not demonstrate His love for you by promising you that bad things won't happen to good people. And God did not demonstrate His love for you by telling you that you will be healed of all your sickness and infirmity. And God did not demonstrate His love for you by telling you that all of your problems will vanish away. But here's the gospel. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. But God demonstrates His love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And here's the great thing about faith. The great thing about faith is the one that we trust. And the one we trust can do great things. All of you have heard that faith can move mountains. One time I asked you, this was years ago, I used this stage and social media to ask a bunch of folks the following question, dot, 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 fill in the blank. By faith, or in the power of God, by faith, blank. And these are the responses that I got, and a few of the stories I know. God's power, by faith, I finally forgave my dad. I lost 150 pounds and quit smoking. I've forgiven my ex-husband for his infidelity. We have adopted two boys from Ethiopia. I overcame drug addiction. I overcame a gambling addiction. I overcame a sex addiction. I overcame a shopping addiction. I overcame an eating disorder. I am four years older. No, not. I'm sorry, four years sober. Yeah, God help me grow four years older. There is a God. I am able to raise my special need child even as a single mom. My marriage was saved. We conceived after being told it would never happen. My child returned home home after three years of silence. I found peace when my husband passed away and I thought my life was over. I remarried my ex-husband after a long, nasty divorce. God's spirit by faith. And let me just say to you, I say it often, not just at Easter, but we put our faith in a man named Jesus. And he's the only one who has ever predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off. And can I say, and I'm available for anybody, text me today, the evidence is overwhelming. But do not sign his name to promises that he has not made you. So faith. Expressing itself in love. Anybody have any idea about the Bible and love? Pretty complicated, right? Pretty obscure. Pretty subtle message. Let's walk through it just for a moment see if we can figure it out. Again, it's very ancient and obscure. Hang in with me. The most famous verse in the best-selling book of all time tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. When someone, a lawyer testing that son of God, asked him what matters above everything else, what did he say? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He had a group of earlier followers that we're a part of because they changed the world. And he told them, a new commandment I give to you to love one another. And with it, he attached a promise to it. He said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, One of those early disciples, when he was an aged man, he had lived faithfully. That's what I want to do. And this disciple named John would write, and he would say that 
Whoever loves is born of God and knows God. And he would flip that and say, whoever does not love does not know God and is not born of God. And this disciple John talked more about love than any of the disciples, and he would say, God is love. A man named Peter would say, above all else, love each other deeply from the heart, because love covers a multitude of sins. Paul, he was kind of confused. He was complicated about it. He said the goal of our instruction is love. Love with a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He said there are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. It's almost like God is thinking that we, I don't know, that we have tiny little brains and short attention spans. And that He just needs to give us a one-word answer to every important question. Just one word. What if we got it? What makes a church great? What does the devil hate? What do you look for on a date? What do you hope for in a mate? What does a child await? Why are we driven to procreate? What is it impossible to overrate? What will be our ultimate faith? Love, 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 love. So, with our tiny little brains and our short attention spans, let's say that we want to be about love. Yesterday we gathered in the beautiful city of Oxford, outside of Oxford in Taylor, and we married a couple. And almost every wedding that is done, there is a chapter that's read or quoted, and it is 1 Corinthians 13. And a little bit of context, Mark Demas touched on it when he was here talking about challenging us to love all people and to grow one day in God's timing to be a multicultural church. But in 1 Corinthians 12, there is pride and arrogance and ego and unresolved fighting and quarreling in the, in the church of Corinth. Can you imagine that? You've never heard of a church like that, right? There was fighting, unresolved fighting and quarreling. They weren't getting along in chapter 12, and he addresses that. In love, by faith, he addresses that. And in chapter 14, they were struggling with resentment and envy and bitterness and comparison. Never heard of that, right? But it was happening in the church of Corinth. And so Paul took time out in between chapter 14, or chapter 12 and chapter 14, to write a letter to the people of Mississippi so they could read this passage of poetry at their wedding ceremonies. No, no, no. Paul writes and says, you guys need a break because in love I'm lowering the hammer. He says to them in the early part of 1 Corinthians, he says, you're worldly and immature. You boast, you envy, and you're puffed up. And so in that, he needs to tell them some good things about love. And of the list though, eight or so are negative what love you know, the negative side of love, it's boast, it's proud, or it's not, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude or self-seeking, it's not easily irritated or angered, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It, it says that, it doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. But there's two positives as we round home just quickly, I want to talk to you about, and it's patience. Love is patient and love is kind. Do you know, there's a man named Dallas Willard. Um, a couple of young men in our church are reading him. 
Dallas Willard is my favorite philosopher, theologian, writer. And he was asked once to describe Jesus in a word. And do you know what he said? What one word would you... Uh, the answer is not love. It would be a great day if that was the answer. But this answer, Dallas Willard said, relaxed. Now, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know any passage in the New Testament that describes Jesus directly as relaxed. I've never known any Christian church gathering, and I've I've worshipped on uh, several continents. I've never been in a worship gathering, traditional, contemporary, any language, where someone stands up and has a creed where they say, "I, I believe in Jesus Christ, the born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and relaxed. Like nobody, I'm sure nobody has ever said that because it doesn't sound religious or it doesn't sound dignified. But Jesus came into the world and when He was 12 years old, He said something I wish my kids would have said when they're 12. He said, I am about my Father's business. And what did He do at 12 years old? He was a carpenter. What did He do at 15 years old? He was a carpenter. What did He do at 19 years old? Carpenter. 24, 29, I'll tell you. He worked, he labored and toiled in an obscure little village called Nazareth. And at 29 years old, he was still hammering nails and selling boards. But he bore a vocational weight that the world, that was unprecedented, that the world had never known. Israel wasn't in good shape. The world needed him. But he was relaxed and patient in his father's love. When he finally launched his ministry, a man named John the Baptist helped him launch big. And what was the first thing he did when he launched? Anybody know? He went off the grid. He went into the wilderness for 40 days and said, I want to spend unhurried time with my father who loves me. When he preached his first sermon in his hometown, his message was so radically inclusive of outsiders becoming insiders that the listeners wanted to kill him. In fact, they called the first ever committee meeting and were trying to figure out how they could push him off a cliff, read Luke's gospel. And it says this in Luke, that Jesus went through the midst of the crowd. Who does that? He, Jesus, is relaxed. And patience is relaxed. When he was traveling with his disciples... At one point he said, you guys go ahead and find some food. I'm tired. I'm going to stay back here. And when they got back to him, he was at a well with a woman who was a Samaritan, a Gentile, a harlot. He was relaxed and unhurried and knew something about faith and love that we as a church need to learn. But the disciples, they were slow. Slow to understand. He told them one time this. He said this to the disciples, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. But here's what he did not say to them. He did not say, I'm going to swap you out. And this isn't funny for some of you because we live in a functional, transactional world where we dump and discard things and people. But that's not what love does. And your God personified, exemplified in this man, Jesus. God became one of us to clear things up for us. And He showed us the power of love. And it is in patience. In patience. Again, Dallas Willard described love. He defined it this way. Patience is this. The ability to dwell gladly in the present moment when we would prefer 
not to. That is patience. And if you're not patient, you can't love well. Look at it this way. Next slide. There's two practices that we see in Jesus. The practice of slowing and the practice of knowing. Next slide. This is important. Relaxed people look and hurried people overlook. And so as we begin to close, I want to ask you, what kind of person do you want to be? As our team comes up to close us out in worship today, I want to just challenge you with this and ask you this question. What kind of person do you want to be? There's one person who gives and receives love outrageously. At work, there's a person, that person, they seek him out. When they need, when they're confused, they ask him for wisdom. When something's gone great, they look for him to celebrate with them. At home, he's the real deal. When he's in the wrong, he doesn't get defensive. He apologizes and confesses. When someone has wronged him, he forgives. But look, he doesn't have a lot. He doesn't have a corner office. He just got a little cubicle. He only goes on one, maybe two vacations a year. Doesn't spend a lot of time on social media. Doesn't worry about a lot of stuff that we worry about. But he's got this joy-producing, life-giving, other-centered, God-rooted love. But there's this other person. They've got a lot of stuff. But people find him to be arrogant, narcissistic, and ego-driven. At work, he's a jerk. When someone does him wrong, he looks to get even and harm them more than he perceived them to harm him. And at home, he has ex-spouses, children that feel betrayed and friends that feel deceived and He's got a lot of stuff. But he failed at love. So who do you want to be? And as a church, who do we want to be? What's our vision? And what's our hope? It's this passage, excuse me, Jennifer. The only thing that counts is faith. Expressing itself in love. And what if that was us? What if we could be a place that discounted that and discounted that and discounted that and discounted that and we would not get trapped up on the peripheral, but at the center of who we are, we would say that we want to be a place and specifically people who help others find faith and express it in love. It's the only thing that counts. Would you stand today?